This episode of The Power Connect is brought to you by the book Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. News about climate restoration is the antidote to eco-anxiety. We can do this. We know how to do this. We can finance it. We can get it done by 2050. We just need to let everyone know and have some leaders committed to this as we are. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 22 of the program happening on a Saturday. A Saturday special, ladies and gentlemen, as we welcome to the program today, authors of the book Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race, Mr. Peter Fikowski and Miss Carol Douglas, two absolutely phenomenal human beings with an absolutely great book. Look, there's plenty of books out there that are talking about climate change, that talk about ideas and suggestions, but the question always is, are they scalable, are they affordable, and can you put them in? into action. Well, I'll tell you what, the ideas that are put forth in the book Climate Restoration are not only actionable, but they are actionable today. And they have happened before. So it's an absolutely phenomenal book. I'm excited to talk to them about it. And I'm excited for you to hear about the ideas from Mr. Peter Fikowski and Miss Carol Douglas. But before we get to that, a few housekeeping items, as you know, we like to do each and every show. We'll keep this brief, though, because I'm ready for this conversation. And I hope you are, too. Number one, make sure you're following and subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and of course, you can also follow us on the website as well, thepowerconnect.net. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Helps with the algorithm. It also helps if you listen to the entire program, or at least most of it, folks. So we certainly think we do a good job on that end as well. Two great guests coming up next week, Jim Curtin from Grid Monitor, also a fine clean text member. And Mr. Sean Kelly, CEO and co-founder of Amperon, absolutely incredible conversation he and I had covering all things energy as well as the city of Houston and what it means to the energy ecosystem and how it's evolved as well. So two great episodes on the way. And then, of course, news you can use. Make sure you're checking it out every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's like an espresso shot of energy for your brain, boys and girls, and hopefully you've enjoyed that. And if you'd like to submit news to share with the rest of the energy world as well, and we know that a lot of you do, follow us on LinkedIn, Fred Davis, and and or the Power Connect, or both, why not? And you can also email us, fred at thepowerconnect.net, fred at thepowerconnect.net. Sponsorship, project partners, and or if you just want to be a guest on the show, and we know a lot of you do, reach out to us. Let's make it happen. All right, without further ado, let's get right down to today's show. Four incredible ideas. Again, these are all ideas that can be put in play right now when it comes to restoring the climate. Peter and Carol go into great detail. They give you historical context. They can tell you why it works now and how it's being put into action. Plus, even more appropriate is once these things are put into place, how you can maintain it after it's done. Again, just an absolutely phenomenal book. I Hopefully, you guys enjoy the conversation. I know I certainly did, and then you go rush out and get the book. Without further ado, authors of the book, Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race, Mr. Peter Fikowski and Miss Carol Douglas. I'm a physicist. I never intended to do anything with climate. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at MIT, I learned about climate, about global warming and about CO2. And I thought, wow, those chemical engineers are going to have a lot of work to do around the end of the century. So this is 1975. I said, in 25 years, they can get a trillion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's, you know, this is just that, you know, they're still sending men to the moon that year, I think. And I said, you know, I'm not very smart. You know, I'm an 18, 19 year old. Let me go do astrophysics. I won't harm anyone. So I, I stayed uh, on my uh, pathway towards astrophysics, ended up 
coming here to Silicon Valley and working at NASA. I worked at the Fairchild Artificial Intelligence Lab, worked in semiconductor manufacturing for a while, and uh, got a little bored and ended up doing volunteer work for poverty reduction. So getting funding for uh, immunizing the world's kids, getting microfinance going around the world. I was very fortunate because both of those were totally successful that for the child immunization, UNICEF had actually come to my organization, the organization I worked with and said, listen, you know, we're slowing the progress on our promise towards immunizing all the world's kids by 1990. It slowed down and we're not going to make it. We need some money. And our advisors tell us that with the Reagan administration, that'll never happen. Can you help us? And we said, well, yeah. And so we went to Congress. We went to the media got the people interested and uh, the immunization rate went from 8% to 85% in 1990. And it stayed there ever since the last 30 years. When my daughter got back from college, I looked up on my wall and as I look over the monitor at my wall there, it says, my mission, my mission in life is to leave a world that we're proud of to our children. My daughter comes back from college and I think, you know, if we, if I leave a world that is unlivably hot, I'll not be proud of that. And it says right there, that's my mission. So I'm not going to do anything else until I get that thing under control. I get, now this is because, you know, uh, the man who was blessed to have been asked to you know, have his organization asked by UNICEF to immunize the world's kids, work with Mohammed Yunus to get half the world living on a dollar, less than a dollar a day access to you to microfinance. I just happened to be, as I call it, spear carriers in those operas, just a very minor part, but I saw those operas happen. And I said, okay, good. Well, let's re get CO2 back down. I've been an environmentalist since before I can, before I could talk. Um, my parents would take me into the woods behind our house. I would start to sing when I was two years old, take me out, I would stop put me back in the woods, I would sing. And I sort of have grew up in the woods and have that consciousness. When I decided to become a writer, I knew that I would be writing about environment um, in some way, uh, basically. And when I, I worked early on for Lester Brown at the World Watch Institute in the 90s, which is when I when I first heard of climate change. And it was back then it was all it was portrayed as all very theoretical. Obviously, everything's happening a lot faster than we thought. But back then, it was kind of theoretical. I actually was able to write the um, the very first large piece on climate for the National Geographic Society in one of their books. Um, I like grandiose topics, big topics. It was called Climate and Civilization. And at that point in the 90s, none of the editors had ever heard of climate change. So they were, you know, I, it was new to them and, and a lot of people. Um, Later, I went to East Africa for a conservation organization and in Kenya and other countries, it became really clear. Um, I was, uh, it became up close and personal that climate change was happening in very harmful, destructive ways to people's lives and livelihoods. And it became even more personal when I adopted a, uh, an orphan girl from one of these places that it's get, it gets worse every year. So I wanted to work more on climate. I did some things on climate for the UN, uh, United Nations Environment Program, and wanted to keep doing that. When I got back to the States, a mutual acquaintance 
introduced Peter and myself. And when I, I will not forget our very first meeting at a place downtown in DC, he was traveling through and I was living here. I am living here. He, um, he explained to me that net zero was absolutely inadequate. Um, and that even if we stopped using fossil fuels tomorrow, we would still have this problem of a, a trillion tons of legacy or historic CO2 in the air. And that climate restoration is all about getting rid of that. And it's that lingering CO2 that's really causing the climate havoc that we're all seeing. And he said that when he's, I think it's when he said, we could stop using fossil fuels tomorrow and we're still, well, my interpretation is screwed. He probably said it more nicely. Um, I probably did. That, <laughs> I, my jaw dropped and I thought, yeah, we need to work on this. And we've been working together. Um, we hit it off and we've been working together ever since, which is about three and a half years. Do you feel like this book is better timed and better suited for release now where you're going to get a wider reception? Because we all know audience yeah. and is everything versus had you put this out 10 years ago, which we know these were still issues back then, but it may have been dismissed a lot easier than where now people are saying, hey, look, you guys got four legitimate solutions here that no one's talking about. Well, it's interesting because it, there's two sides there. And uh, it wouldn't was was not possible. You know, as I'm hearing you ask the question, I can see there are all these things that made it possible. And it's that book, the book would not have been possible 10 years ago. However, if we could time travel and bring it back, I think it would have been adopted quite happily. Because you know, certainly since, you know, you know for however many years it's been since Carol and I were undergraduates, we wanted humanity to survive, you know, since the, you know, in 72, the limits to growth was written. And it was all about, you know what, we're going to hit the wall right around 2010, 2020. And of course, we're hitting the wall like they said we would. We all want to survive. But man, is it a lot of work to sort out the wheat and the shaft. And just in the process of writing the book, just in the process of talking about it in the last four months since it came, or two, or whatever, two to four months since it came out, I, we've all learned a lot and things have shifted a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to add a bit to that, I think now is a particularly germane time for it to arrive because of this growing sense of ego anxiety and climate anxiety that people are experiencing. There's even meetup groups talking about getting together and mourning the end of the species and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. So this is good news. This is the antidote. News about climate restoration is the antidote to eco-anxiety. We can do this. We know how to do this. We can finance it. We can get it done by 2050. We just need to let everyone know and have some leaders committed to this as we are. Talk a little bit about these four things, what they are, and just kind of how illuminating it was to the two of you. You've been doing this for almost 40 plus years. Carol, you've been writing about these, these issues for 40 plus years. How illuminating was it to not only discover this, but to be able to share it with the rest of the world? In retrospect, it's a much easier path. So the, the number one pathway of the four, of the big four as we call them, is um, ocean restoration. And so that's the, that's the method that nature uses before each of our ice ages. And we've had 10 ice ages over the last million years. Each time, a trillion tons of CO2 get removed from the atmosphere, 
sequestered as biocarbon in the ocean. They stay there for 50,000 years. The ocean currents change and they oxidize and they rot like trees will rot. And then the CO2 comes back out and the planet warms. But you know, it's happened 10 times. This is not rocket science anymore. And we know how nature does it. We know how to make it happen. But I only heard about it well in because it became contra was controversial. You know, so the idea was introduced in 1990. Then it was tested in 2002, 2004. It was controversial, tested again in 2012, almost violently controversial. The whole scientific community said, I don't want anything to do with the controversy. And they abandoned it. And so my, my five experts never even mentioned the ocean fertilization, which is the way nature does it, <laughs> because they were scared by the politics. The politics was that the United Nations said, we have to reduce emissions. And then the environmentalists saw this, these people saying, you know, we can cool the planet right back down again, and we can do it in just a few years. And the environmentalists said, wait a minute, the UN says we have to reduce emissions. If we, cool, if we take the CO2 out and cool the planet, that'll just give us permission to, the oil companies permission to sell us gas and oil. So we, we, can't, reduce the, we can't reduce the CO2 because it, it'll counter what the UN is telling us to do. You know, here in 2022, that's crazy talk. In 2012, this was the way environmentalists thought because this is what the UN told them to think. And it was a mistake, you know, and everyone apologizes for the mistake. But um, that's why I never heard about it until much later. And um, it turns out that, that the iron fertilization, the way I describe it is when I think of the ocean, I think of the blue ocean around Hawaii. But it's not green. Green is where you have photosynthesis. And the ocean, when the plants grow, which is algae or phytoplankton, then they eventually they get eaten and die it all falls to the bottom or middle of the ocean. Some of it gets to the bottom, but most of it doesn't. Most of it just stays dissolved. On land, though, that those plants would rot and the CO2 would go back into the air. In the ocean, it's, it stays under, under the water and there's no oxygen, so it doesn't rot. And um, th the question then is, how do you turn those, that, those blue ocean, parts of the ocean green? And uh, the missing nutrient, and so there's lots of sun, lots of water, and lots of the other nutrients. The missing nutrient is iron, because iron doesn't dissolve well in ocean in water. Right? It tends to fall to the bottom. So the way nature normally gets iron into the ocean, plants and animals need iron, is with dust storms, with volcanoes, and then whales and things will upwell the iron back from the depths. And we've killed off 95% of the whales back you know, before we had petroleum, because we were using whales for oil to light our houses. Yeah, and, and other complicated things happen, but th th there's much less dust and much less iron in the ocean now. And the amount is unbelievably low. And you know, it amazed me that it wasn't until 1990 that they realized that they could, that the iron was the cause of the ice ages. And the reason they, it took that long is the amount of iron you need to turn the blue ocean green is a hundredth of a teaspoon per square meter. So imagine sweeping your front porch, <laughs> you have several teaspoons. So it gives you an idea, this is like nothing. And it was so hard to measure such a small quantity. 
And so that's iron fertilization in the ocean. That, and so obviously in that, in, in I think it was what year, uh, what, John Martin who came up with that yes. uh, philosophy. And then, of course, uh, poor John, RIP, wasn't able to see everything go through. But obviously folks have carried on that legacy. So we certainly uh, uh, hats off to the folks that have done that. Yes. So then you've got synthetic limestone. Uh, yes. as far as, an, as another option as well. And so a little background on synthetic limestone and uh, its application. The uh, context for synthetic limestone is nature. nature's other silver bullet on carbon is limestone. 99% of the carbon on our planet is all under the ocean in limestone. And if you picture the White Cliffs of Dover, um, or there are other places like that, that's the limestone. It's the skeletons and shells of animals and for billion you know for a billion years or so. The synthetic limestone, they take the uh, essentially an oyster, imagine an oyster shell at your restaurant with a little little tiny oyster in there, makes this beautiful big shell, and that's limestone. So it's not complicated is the point. And by weight, it's almost half CO2. It turns out that we use, 50 or 60 billion tons of rock every year for our roads and buildings. And if we use, uh, and we can replace the quarried rock with the synthetic limestone built much the way an oyster makes its, its shell. And uh, in that way, you can sequester a ton of CO2 in every cubic yard of concrete. So, you know, if you think of the road in front of your house, that road would sequester just thousands of tons of co2 probably tens of thousands with just a cubic foot of, of cubic synthetic yard. Lim- a cube i'm sorry a cubic yard of of yeah. limestone synthetic limestone yeah. would sequester that much carbon yeah and if you if you do the math it's 44 percent by weight it's 44 percent co2 if you do if you're a chemist it's calcium carbonate caco3 uh-huh. if you're not a chemist it's still calcium carbonate for the rest of us, then basically, <laughs> <laughs> what what he said. So you, you talked about the iron fertilization and what was kind of the bugaboo as to why folks were a little reluctant to do that. Obviously, they're starting to come around. Thankfully, what's been the uh, hullabaloo, if you will, on synthetic limestone? It's a, just a whole new idea. Well, b- backing up a little bit with the iron fertilization, what's great is the the plankton, the the algae is fo- uh, food for fish. And so the benefit is fishery restoration. And there's a lot of money in that. Now, there's more than enough uh, money from the fish that feed on the plankton. So the CO2 uh, removal is a side effect of restoring the fisheries. With the limestone, the limestone is sold into the market for limestone. San Francisco Airport um, is the first major customer here in the Bay Area because the company that does it is here in, in Silicon Valley. And, um, uh, you know, and so you have, a, you have a trillion dollar market for that rock. This is not a, not a, not a hard sell. And um, the, the barrier for that, the first one, well, people just don't think of rock, right? No. And when I first heard about this, Brent Constance, who started the company, he had started out making, uh, making cement. Right, because if you read articles about climate, you say, "Oh my God, the cement production is seven percent of all CO two emissions." And so, as a good environmentalist, he went there. Now he had spent his career in in geophysics, 
and ocean physics and cement. And so he, he invented most of the cement you, you use, like if you're replacing a hip. If you have a repla hip replacement, you're using Brent's cement okay. on that. This is an expert. Anyway, so he went to cement and after a few years realized this isn't the place to go. 90% of concrete is rock and sand. Cement is 10%. So he said, let's, let's make this synthetic limestone and get more mileage out of it. But, and then when I first heard about it, I rolled my eyes. I thought, this is stupid. But, you know, I've also learned that uh, some of the best, most of the best ideas seem really stupid at first. So I, they I are, I, I mean, right? I mean, that's why, and that's why people scoff at them, right? Because they think it's ridiculous. And then after you do a little, you know, due diligence, like, wow, they might be, might be onto something there. Yeah, because I, I, who knew, first of all, that 99% of all the carbon is in limestone. Who knew that you can just make limestone? Like in retrospect, it's not that difficult. You, you, know, you, you look at chalk, right? That's basically limestone <laughs> that you use on the blackboard. Uh, Are they still using blackboards today? I don't know. <laughs> We're dating ourselves on the show today. <laughs> I think we half of our Gen Z audience just tuned out. What what the hell are they talking about? Blackboards? Right. These guys have gone way over our heads. Um, that, 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 that first conversation with Brent was so amazing because I was totally skeptical. He was like, I'm trying. We'll see what we can do because at least we can sequester CO2 from the power plants. And after we talked, we realized, now, wait a minute, this is the big, big, big deal. Because yeah. we can't, the, the market for rock is big enough that we can actually get all of the carbon out of the atmosphere this way. It's much, it's a hundred times more difficult than with the iron fertilization. But, you know, when you do a, an important project like the survival of our species, so we better have a plan B and a plan C. Well, and you've got, uh, luckily for the folks at home uh, who go get the book, Climate Restoration, there's plan A, B, C, and D. Uh, so we've yes. covered iron fertilization. We've covered synthetic limestone. Uh, this other one, which just, again, like I said, all four of these blew my mind, but this one especially considering that uh, we've all ingested it at some point, and uh, I just had some over the weekend. Who knew I was doing my part to uh, reduce carbon in the air when I was eating <laughs> sushi over the weekend? But who in the hell knew seaweed uh, was as big of, of a, you know, you know, carbon sequester is as anything that's out there. And it's, and, and, you know, again, all these are ubiquitous, right? Like there's, there's, there's avenues out there for all four of them, which like I said, we touched on, but seaweed kelp, I mean, just the, the, the plethora of uses uh, for how it can reduce carbon as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found the seaweed business absolutely fascinating. Kelp is sort of a superhero plant, particularly kelp. Um, it's, it's this brown, what they call a macroalgae. It's technically not a plant, but an algae. And it can grow up to two feet a day. So that's, and then while it's growing, it's photosynthesizing, obviously, and packing away CO2. Um, it used to be more ubiquitous, basically a lot. It used to, these kelp forests, Underwater forests used to line most of the continental, um, most of the coasts on the on the continent. So people are now um, looking into restoring the, um, some of the kelp partly along the coast and also in mid ocean by creating what they call basically kelp floating kelp farms. Okay. They call it um, marine perma permaculture because it's in the ocean and it's it's some um, it's sort of permanent. Um, 
again, just like ocean iron fertilization uh, nudges the phytoplankton to bloom, which is the base of the food chain. That's why the fish come back. In this case, the kelp provides habitat as well as a certain amount of food for fish and, and turtles and all kinds of things. Um, what's really cool that I had no idea about with kelp and other kinds of seaweed is that they, they not only, some of them not only provide food, and food products like a, a kelp product is in um, ice cream and toothpaste, apparently. Um, it, they also provide um, feed. Some people are working on different kinds of seaweed additives for cows, uh, for cattle feed that keeps the, keeps the cow burps down so they don't emit methane as much, in case you've heard of that. And seaweed provides feedstock it can actually substitute for petroleum you know how we use petroleum as a feedstock for plastics and and dyes and paints and all kinds of stuff kelp and other kinds of seaweed can do the same thing they can process that stuff into bioplastic vegan leather um all kinds of really high value consumer products as well as um, industrial products um, there's a number of places working on this it's it's still in early days but it's it's very very interesting oh also um, they produce bios something called biostimulant out of it which is not quite fertilizer but it helps plants grow and certain kinds of pharmaceuticals all this stuff comes out of seaweed so its connection to climate restoration is that they think that they would use maybe half of the seaweed that they grow for for these products that would fund the whole business. And then the other half could get sunk and take its carbon right to the bottom or not to the bottom, but to the deep into the ocean. You know, I sound like a broken record here, but look, there's something to be said for having new solutions and new alternatives. Methane oxidation, again, not something that we hear a lot about. Uh, how did you stumble across it? Methane is oxidized all the time by nature. And it, it happens, um, it's a chemical reaction that happens, tends to happen over the oceans um, with the, an interaction between salt, uh, salt, the salt air, the, um, the sodium in the salt air and chlorine, which exists naturally in the presence of sunlight. Those two things break down methane into oxygen and uh, carbon dioxide and water. You're thinking, oh, we're making carbon dioxide. Yeah, but carbon dioxide is much weaker than methane. And people have been working on this the last few years to figure out exactly how that happens and to replicate that natural process um, and, and, and to, to speed it up so that we reduce the ambient level of methane in general. Get you guys out of here with this. Obviously, you can go buy this book at Amazon. I'm guessing just Google uh, Climate Restoration. Uh, you've already gotten good reviews on, on Goodreads, so something to be said for that. And like I said, I can't tell you guys enough about what a great book this is. What's next for uh, Carol Douglas and Peter Fikowski? I think what's really next is furthering these ideas and through forums like this. Thanks. So thank you very much for having us on. We're trying to, as I say, we're trying to get everyone to talk about it so that it, it gets on the agenda of bodies that can really make a difference like the UN and the administration and supporting um, uh, what's next. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So being the Silicon Valley entrepreneur, you know, the couple key things next. One is we're putting together a governance group 
because most people are, say, are saying, well, we love the idea of uh, restoring the climate, but we don't want it helter skelter. We don't want it to be like rabbits in Australia, if you know that story about how they were uh, made to uh, hope to be a solution and they were a huge problem. And so we're putting, putting together the governance group, which is going to be much easier than you think, because the key to the whole thing is getting clear about what's the outcome you want. And uh, knowing that the outcome we want is like, getting CO2 to levels that are good for humanity, that's actually pretty easy to do. And so building up the companies, getting the education out, the Foundation for Climate Restoration, I helped found about four years ago. They've got, they're putting together curricula for schools. And if you, any teachers hear this, they can go to the Foundation for Climate Restoration to get the curriculum, both for middle school, high school, and uh, soon it'll be college. Thank you so much for that, Peter and Carol. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at thepowerconnect.net, Apple, Google, Spotify. Make sure you check it out. You will be glad that you did. Be sure to follow and subscribe because when you do, you can get news you can use. And, of course, two great guests coming up next week, Jim Curtin from Grid Monitor, Sean Kelly from Amperon, and we've got a whole slew of guests that we're ready to talk about and share with you as well. So, Definitely make sure you stay tuned. As always, thank you to all the listeners, the guests, the audience. Without you doing what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to